Hello, this is R.J. Deacon reading the Supreme Court of United States Opinion Syllabus in Halland v. Brackeen, certiori to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, argued November 9, 2022, and decided June 15, 2023. This case arises from three separate child custody proceedings governed by the Indian Child Welfare Act, ICWA, a federal statute that aims to keep Indian children connected to Indian families. ICWA governs state court adoption and foster care proceedings involving Indian children. Among other things, the Act requires placement of an Indian child according to the Act's hierarchical preferences, unless the state court finds good cause to depart from them. That's 25 U.S.C. sections 1915a and b. Under those preferences, Indian families or institutions from any tribe, not just the tribe to which the child has a tie, outrank unrelated non-Indians or non-Indian institutions. Further, the child's tribe may pass a resolution altering the prioritization order, section 1915c. The preferences of the Indian child or her parent generally cannot trump those set by statute or tribal resolution. In involuntary proceedings, the Act mandates that the Indian child's parent or custodian and tribe be given notice of any custody proceedings, as well as the right to intervene, sections 1912a, b, and c. Section 1912d requires a party seeking to terminate parental rights or to remove an Indian child from an unsafe environment to satisfy the court that active efforts have been made to provide remedial services and rehabilitative programs designed to prevent breakup of the Indian family. And a court cannot order relief unless the party demonstrates by a heightened burden of proof and expert testimony that the child is likely to suffer serious emotional or physical damage if the parent or Indian custodian retains custody. It's sections 1912D and E. Even for voluntary proceedings, a biological parent who gives up an Indian child cannot necessarily choose the child's foster or adoptive parents. The child's tribe has a right to intervene at any point in a proceeding to place a child in foster care or terminate parental rights, as well as a right to collaterally attack the state court's custody decree. Those are sections 1911C and 1914. The tribe, thus, can sometimes enforce ICWA's placement preferences against the wishes of one or both biological parents, even after the child is living with a new family. Finally, the states must keep certain records related to child placements, see section 1915E, and transmit to the Secretary of the Interior all final adoption decrees and other specified information, see section 1951A. Petitioners, a birth mother, foster and adoptive parents, and the state of Texas filed this suit in federal court against the United States and other federal parties. Seven Indian tribes intervened to defend the law alongside the federal parties. Petitioners challenged ICWA as unconstitutional on multiple grounds, 
They asserted that Congress lacks the authority to enact ICWA, and that several of ICWA's requirements violate the anti-commandeering principle of the Tenth Amendment. They argued that ICWA employs racial classifications that unlawfully hinder non-Indian families from fostering or adopting Indian children. And they challenged Section 1915C, the provision that allows tribes to alter the prioritization order on the grounds that it violates the non-delegation doctrine. The district court granted petitioners' motions for summary judgment on their constitutional claims, and the in-bank Fifth Circuit affirmed in part and reversed in part. The Fifth Circuit concluded that ICWA does not exceed Congress's legislative power, that Section 1915C does not violate the non-delegation doctrine, and that some of ICWA's placement preferences satisfy the guarantee of equal protection. The Fifth Circuit was evenly divided as to whether ICWA's other preferences, those prioritizing other Indian families and Indian foster homes over non-Indian families, unconstitutionally discriminate on the basis of race, and thus affirmed the district court's ruling that these preferences are unconstitutional. As to petitioners' Tenth Amendment arguments, the Fifth Circuit held that Section 1912D's active efforts requirement Section 1912E's and Section 1912F's expert witness requirements, and Section 1915E's record-keeping requirement unconstitutionally commandeer the states. And because it divided evenly with respect to other challenged provisions, Section 1912A's notice requirements, Section 1915A, uh, Section 1915B's placement preferences, and Section 1951A's record-keeping requirement, the Fifth Circuit affirmed the district court's holding that these requirements violate the Tenth Amendment. The Supreme Court held uh, affirmed in part, reversed in part, vacated and remanded in part, and Justice Barrett delivered the opinion of the court. The court declines to disturb the Fifth Circuit's conclusion that ICWA is consistent with Congress's Article I authority. The court has characterized Congress's power to legislate with, it, with respect to the Indian tribes as plenary and exclusive. United States versus Lara. Superseding both tribal and state authority. Santa Clara Pueblo versus Martinez. The court traced that power to multiple sources. First, the Indian Commerce Clause authorizes Congress to regulate commerce with the Indian tribes. That's the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. And the court has interpreted the Indian Commerce Clause to reach not only trade, but also certain Indian affairs. See Cotton Petroleum Corporation versus New Mexico. The Treaty Clause provides a second source of power. The treaty power does not laterally, or literally authorize Congress to act legislatively, since it is housed in Article II. But treaties made pursuant to that power can authorize Congress to deal with matters with which otherwise Congress could not deal. See again, Lara. Also, 
principles inherent in the Constitution's structure may empower Congress to act in the field of Indian affairs. See Morton v. Moncari. Finally, the trust relationship between the United States and the Indian people informs the exercise of legislative power. It's United States versus Mitchell. In sum, Congress's power to legislate with respect to Indians is well-established and broad, but it is not unbound. It is plenary within its sphere, but even a sizable sphere has borders. Petitioners contend that ICWA impermissibly treads on the state's traditional authority over family law. But when Congress validly legislates pursuant to its Article I powers, the court has not hesitated to find conflicting state family law preempted. Notwithstanding the limited application of federal law in the field of domestic relations generally, that's Ridgeway versus Ridgeway, and the court has recognized Congress's power to displace the jurisdiction of state courts in adoption proceedings involving Indian children. That's uh, Fisher versus District Court of 16th Judicial, Judicial District of Montana. Petitioners contend that no source of congressional authority authorizes Congress to regulate custody proceedings for Indian children. They suggest that the Indian Commerce Clause, for example, authorizes Congress to legislate only with respect to Indian tribes as government entities, not Indians as individuals. But this court's holdings, more than a century ago, that commerce with the Indian tribes means commerce with the individuals composing those tribes, see United States versus Holiday, renders that argument a dead end. Petitioners also assert that ICWA takes the commerce out of the Indian Commerce Clause because children are not commodities that can be traded. Brief for individual petitioners at 16. This point, while rhetorically powerful, ignores the court's precedent interpreting the Indian Commerce Clause to encompass not only trade, but also other Indian affairs. Petitioners next argue that ICWA cannot be authorized by principles inherent in the Constitution's structure because those principles extend at most to matters of war and peace. Brief for Texas at 28. Again, petitioners make no argument that takes this court's cases on their own terms. The court has referred generally to the powers necessarily inherent in any federal government, and has offered non-military examples, such as creating departments of Indian affairs. See Lara at um, 201-202. Petitioners next observe that ICWA does not implement a federal treaty, but Congress did not purport to enact ICWA pursuant to its treaty power, and the Fifth Circuit did not uphold ICWA on that rationale. Finally, petitioners turn to criticizing this court's precedent as inconsistent with the Constitution's original meaning, but they neither ask the court to overrule the precedent they criticize, nor try to reconcile their approach with it. If there are arguments that ICWA exceeds Congress's authority as precedent stands today, petitioners do not make them here. Petitioners' anti-commandeering challenges which address three categories of ICWA provisions, are rejected.
First, petitioners challenge certain requirements that apply in involuntary proceedings to place a child in foster care or terminate parental rights, focusing on the requirement that an initiating party demonstrate active efforts to keep the Indian family together. Section 1912D. Petitioners contend this subsection directs state and local agencies to provide extensive services to the parents of Indian children, even though it is well established that the Tenth Amendment bars Congress from commandeering the state's officers or those of their political subdivisions to administer or enforce a federal regulatory program. See Prince, ver- Prince versus United States with a Z. To succeed, petitioners must show that Section 1912D harnesses a state's legislative or executive authority. But the provision applies to any party who initiates an involuntary proceeding, thus sweeping in private individuals and agencies as well as government entities. A demand that either public or private actors can satisfy is unlikely to require the use of sovereign power. C. Murphy v. National Collegiate Athletic Association. Petitioners nonetheless insist that the states institute or that states institute the vast majority of involuntary proceedings. But examples of private suits are not hard to find. And while petitioners treat active efforts as synonymous with government programs, state courts have applied the active efforts requirement in private suits too. That is consistent with ICWA's findings, which describe the role that both public and private actors played in the unjust separation of Indian children from their families and tribes. See Section 1901. Given all this, it is implausible that Section 1912D is directed primarily, much less exclusively, at the states. Legislation that applies even-handedly to state and private actors does not typically implicate the Tenth Amendment. See Murphy. Petitioners would distinguish the court's uh, precedents, so holding on the grounds that those cases addressed laws regulating a state's commercial activity, while ICWA regulates a state's core sovereign function of protecting the health and safety of children within its borders. Brief for Petitioners, Texas at 66. This argument is presumably directed at situations in which only the state can rescue a child from neglectful parents, but the state is not necessarily the only option for rescue, and Section 1912D applies to other types of proceedings too. Petitioners do not distinguish between these varied situations, much less isolate a domain in which the state only in which only the state can act. If there is a core of involuntary proceedings committed exclusively to the sovereign, Texas neither identifies its contours nor explains what Section 1912D requires of a state in that context. Petitioners have therefore failed to show that the active efforts requirement commands states to deploy their executive or legislative power to implement federal Indian policy. And as for petitioners' challenges to the other provisions of Section 1912, the notice requirement, expert witness requirement, and evidentiary standards, the court doubts that requirements placed on a state as litigant litigant implicate the 10th, oh, 
The court doubts that requirements placed on a state as litigant implicate the Tenth Amendment. But regardless, these provisions, like Section 1912D, apply to both private and state actors, so they too pose no anti-commandeering problem. Petitioner's next challenge, ICWA's placement preferences, set forth in Section 1915. Petitioners assert that this provision orders state agencies to perform a diligent search for placements that satisfy ICWA's hierarchy. Just as Congress cannot compel state officials to search databases to determine the lawfulness of gun sales, see Prince, petitioners argue Congress cannot compel state officials to search for a federally preferred placement. As with Section 1912, petitioners have not shown that the diligent search requirement, which applies to both private and public parties, demands the use of state sovereign authority. Moreover, Section 1915 does not require anyone, much less the states, to search for alternative placements. Instead, the burden is on the tribe or the other objecting party to produce a higher-ranked placement. See Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl. So, as it stands, petitioners assert an anti-commandeering challenge to a provision that does not command a state agency to do anything. State courts are a different matter. ICWA indisputably requires them to apply the placement preferences in making custody determinations. See section 19, sections 1915A and B. But Congress can require state courts, unlike state executives and legislatures, to enforce federal law. See New York versus United States. Petitioners draw a distinction between requiring state courts to entertain federal causes of action and requiring them to apply federal law to state causes of action. But this argument runs counter to the Supremacy Clause. When Congress enacts a valid statute, state law is naturally preempted to the extent of any conflict with, the, with a federal statute. See Crosby versus National Foreign Trade Council. That a federal law modifies a state law cause of action does not limit its preemptive effect. See Hillman versus Marietta. Uh, 483 and 493 to 494, and the parenthetical is federal law establishing order of precedence for life insurance beneficiaries preempted state law. Finally, petitioners insist that Congress cannot force state courts to maintain or transmit records of custody proceedings involving Indian children. But the anti-commandeering doctrine applies distinctively to a state court's adjudicative responsibilities. See Prince again. The Constitution allows Congress to require state judges to enforce federal prescriptions insofar as those prescriptions relate to matters appropriate for the judicial power. In Prince, the court indicated that this principle may extend to tasks that are ancillary or quintessentially adjudicative or are a quintessentially adjudicative task, such as recording, registering, and certifying documents. Prince described numerous historical exam examples of Congress imposing record-keeping and reporting requirements on state courts. These early congressional enactments demonstrate that cons the Constitution does not prohibit the federal government from imposing adjudicative tasks on state courts. 
See Bauscher versus Sinar. The court now confirms what Prince suggested. Congress may impose ancillary record-keeping requirements related to state court proceedings without violating the Tenth Amendment. Here, ICWA's record-keeping requirements are comparable to the historical examples. The duties ICWA imposes are ancillary to the state court's obligation to conduct child custody proceedings in compliance with ICWA. The court does not reach the merits of petitioners' two additional claims, an equal protection challenge to ICWA's placement preferences and a non-delegation challenge to Section 1915C. The provision allowing tribes to alter the placement preferences because no party before the court has standing to raise them. The individual petitioners argue that ICWA's hierarchy of preferences injures them by placing them on unequal footing with Indian parents who seek to adopt or foster an Indian child. But the individual petitioners have not shown that this injury is likely to be redressed by judicial relief. See TransUnion LLC versus Ramirez. They seek an injunction preventing the federal parties from enforcing ICWA and a declaratory judgment that the challenge provisions are unconstitutional. Yet, enjoining the federal parties would not remedy the alleged injury. Because state courts apply the placement preferences and state agencies carry out the court-ordered placements, sections 1903-1, 1915-A, and B, the state officials who implement ICWA are not parties to the suit, and there is no reason they should be obliged to honor an incidental legal determination of the suit uh, produced. See Lujan versus Defenders of Wildlife, uh, plurality opinion. Petitioner's request for a declaratory judgment suffers from the same flaw. The individual petitioners insist that state courts are likely to defer to a federal court's interpretation of federal law, thus giving rise to a substantial likelihood that a favorable judgment will redress their injury. But such a theory would mean redressability would be satisfied whenever a decision might persuade actors who are not before the court contrary to Article III's strict prohibition on issuing advisory opinions. That's Carney versus Adams. It is a federal court's judgment, not its opinion, that remedies an injury. The individual petitioners can hope for nothing more than an opinion, so they cannot satisfy Article III. Texas has no equal protection rights of its own. See South Carolina versus Katzenbach and it cannot assert equal protection claims on behalf of its citizens against the federal government. See Alfred L. Snap and Son versus Puerto Rico. The state's creative arguments for why it has standing, despite these settled rules, also fail. Texas's argument that ICWA requires it to break its promise to its citizens that it will be colorblind in child custody proceedings, reply a brief for Texas at 15, is not the concrete and particularized invasion of a legally protected interest necessary to determine or demonstrate an injury in fact. See again Lujan. Texas also claims a direct pocketbook injury associated with the costs of keeping records. 
providing notice in involuntary proceedings, and producing expert testimony before moving a child to foster care or terminating parental rights. But these alleged costs are not fairly traceable to the placement preferences which operate independently of the provisions Texas identifies. See California versus Texas. Texas would continue to incur the complained of costs, even if it were relieved of the duty to apply the placement preferences. Because Texas is not injured by the placement preferences, neither would it be injured by a tribal resolution that altered those preferences pursuant to Section 1915C. Texas, therefore, does not have standing to bring either its equal protection or its non-delegation claims. And although the individual petitioners join Texas's non-delegation challenge to Section 1915C, they raise no independent arguments about why they would have standing to bring this claim. The decision below is affirmed in part, reversed in part, vacated and remanded in part. Justice Barrett delivered the opinion of the court, in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Jackson joined. Justice Gorsuch filed a concurring opinion, in which Justice Sotomayor and Jackson joined, as to parts two, or as to parts one and three. Justice Kavanaugh filed a concurring opinion. Justice Thomas's or Justices Thomas and Alito filed dissenting opinions. Thank you for listening. And to update my longtime listeners on my personal journey, I've gotten all my critical essentials back home to Pablo, Montana, and flew back out to Penn State, where I have decided to, instead of renting a moving truck, I've bought a uh, 1994 M1078, otherwise known as a deuce and half. I've been grinding the rust off and fixing her up. Remember, I drove oversized trucks for 14 years. I learned a thing or two about keeping a rig running. For my green friends, I'm even going to try and clean up the emissions a little bit with a bit of propane injection at cruising speed. Anyway, I named her Serenity after the Firefly series, but also after what she'll do for me when she gets home, which is, she'll be one hell of a redneck RV and take me back into the woods where I always find my Serenity. So, starting July, if you see an old deuce with a motorcycle on the back running the back roads between central Pennsylvania and Montana... Wave and smile. That's me. If you want to say hi, I'm at the same address as always. That's roadsscholar80 at gmail.com. Roads like the truck driving roads and the number 80. Take care. And uh, to update my longtime listeners on my personal journey, I've gotten all my critical essentials home to Pablo, Montana in my old 2003 Jeep Rubicon. Then I flew back out to Penn State where I'm making the same kind of silly decisions that brought me to law school. Essentially, I bought myself a new girlfriend to replace the one I have to leave behind, the irreplaceable Professor Monica Prince from Susquehanna University. Serious, y'all, seriously, y'all read her stuff. The new girlfriend is a military cargo truck. Instead of renting a truck to move home, I'm buying one. It's a 1994 M1078 2.5 ton. I've been grinding the rust off and fixing her up. Remember, I drove oversized trucks for 14 years, so I learned a thing or two about how to keep a rig running. For my green friends, yeah, it's an old, dirty diesel. But I'll clean up the emissions with a little bit of propane injection at cruising speed. Anyway, I named her Serenity, after the Firefly series. Because I feel like I'm a little bit of all of those characters. Shepard Book, Kaylee, Wash, maybe a bit of Mal. But, 
Also, I named her Serenity because of what she'll do for me when she gets home. That is, she'll be one hell of a redneck RV and take me back into the woods where I always find my Serenity. So, start in July, if you see an old deuce with a motorcycle on the back, running the back roads between central PA and Montana, wave and smile. That's me. If you want to say hi or give some support, I'm at the same address as always. RoadScholar80 at gmail.com. That's roads like the truck driving roads and the number eight zero.